passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to episode three of Cruel Summer, a show that looks back at uh, each and every G1 Tournament Climax Finals from the year 1991 to 2018. And uh, today, my special guest host is uh, the co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, the New Japan-centric Super J-Cast, which you can hear at VoicesOfWrestling.com. He is the leader of the Jushin Thunder Liger fan intelligentsia and a man of impeccable music tastes, Mr. Damon McDonald. Damon, how are you today? That is an awesome uh, intro. I, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing that Jushin Liger intelligentsia. I can't even say the word, but I'm going to steal it. Um, it's wonderful to be here. Um, and again, we met for the first time in Tokyo at the Tokyo Dome show, uh, Wrestle Kingdom. And it was a pleasure. And, and you were an awesome dude, and you still are an awesome dude. That hasn't changed. Well, it might and- have changed. No, nah, I don't think it, it has. It might have changed in the, in the last uh, three months. So who, no. you, you don't know. I, I might have changed here in Japan. So well, listen, well, just in the in the five minute warm up conversation we had, you know, we're talking we're talking about music and talking about interests, and you know, we we kind of share a lot of the same of that same of that is that a word same stuff. And yeah, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled to be here. And, and by the way, not for nothing, what a great name. What a great name of this show. I, yeah, so you know the reference. Thing. You would get the reference. You have probably – Bananarama. From Bananarama. And I just I, – I talked about this on the first episode. The the reason I call it Krill Summer, it came from uh, my friends Brayden Harrington and Davey Portman who do the uh, NXT review show up next at uh, postwrestling.com. They did uh, a review show of the May Young Classic 2 uh, tournament, and they named it Forever Young, which is a song by oh, Alphaville, which I was like right. – I got to steal that idea. I'm going to name a show. If I ever do my own show, it's going to be named after an 80s pop song, especially like uh, something that has a lot of synthesizers on it because I love synth pop music of the 80s. Wow. I got to find a way to throw in an Erasure reference. <laughs> on. We talk – We talk. it's weird because my co-host, uh, Joel – the great Joel Abraham, should I say. Um, you know, we, we – our age gap is wide. and But yet he does ha- – he has – 
similar tastes in music, but he's a guy that just like music just doesn't do anything for him. Um, and that's like the one thing where it's like, come on, dude, this band's great. This band's great. And it's, just, it's not just not going to happen. And it's like vice versa. Like he tries to get me into video games. and I'm just like, I, I can't. Um, uh, you know. So I, I think um, you and I are about the same age. So like our music tastes really align really perfectly, I think. And it's a highlight when I listen to the Super J cast. Like I, I love when Music Damon comes out and I'm like, OK, what's he who's he going to talk about this time? You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I don't so, give a shit about Joel talking about Shenmue and uh, all the video game <laughs> stuff. So I don't care if he, when he listens to this, he's going to be like, fuck that guy. Yeah, How dare yeah, you disparage gonna, Shenmue? You. Or whatever yeah. video game he's into at this point. It's, it's probably Shenmue. He only talks about that game so incessantly. Yeah. So, But yeah, I, I, I love when you talk, go on about Duran Duran, Depeche Mode, Dismissed, New Order, U2. It's, it's a highlight for me, along with the talk about New Japan, which is a, a great part of your show. Obviously, it's the main part of your show is the New Japan talk. And I thought having you come on this show, which is you know, primarily about a New Japan event, is, is appropriate. Um, one thing I do want to talk about before we get into the, the, the meat of the show is yes. that you did not answer. Well, you tried to answer, but I did not hear the answer to my question that mm. I sent in, which is... What is the best Spandau Ballet song, and why is it gold? Damon, please answer that for me, because I don't know the answer. So I was so excited, because again, we're talking, you know, that 80s, you know, early 80s, early to mid 80s stuff, which is, you know, that's, I was young, but, you know, that's kind of like when you start getting into music, and it's, you know, it makes an impact on your life. Uh, and And I actually did answer, and it was, it was like a 10 minute ramble. I, I had you on mute. I had I had myself my mic on mute for whatever reason, um, because a lot of times the audio will bleed over. So I, when when Joel will communicate, I hit mute on his channel, and then I come back and you know all this stuff. Um, and I for whatever reason I, I just had I had myself on mute, so it never recorded, never made broadcast. But there was an answer. But so I'll do it quickly here, as to not put your your fine listeners asleep. Um, Oh fuck them! So, Just go on. Just say it. Yeah, yeah. Forget that. All right. Okay. Um, so I would be partial. I like gold. Gold is fun. Well, let me let me just kind of set it up first. So Duran and Spandau, there was a little feud there. I want to go so far as to say it was like Blur Oasis, but they weren't always the best of pals, right? So you kind of drew a line in the sand, and you were either a fan of Duran or you were a fan of Spandau. Uh, and of course, my allegiance is with Simon, Nick, Roger. Uh, Andy and John. Did I say John? Man, eh, you know what I mean. John. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, that's that. But you, 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 you know, you learn to appreciate them. But to answer the question, gold would be probably two on my. I like communication better. Communication, right? That is a good song. Yes, I, I just probably. love singing gold at karaoke. You know. Oh yeah. And yeah. one one song uh, I wish was at karaoke is probably my my maybe my third favorite song. I, it goes like gold, like I I don't go deep, but so it's like gold, uh, true, and then it, only when you leave. And I would love to try to do only when you leave at karaoke at one point. Like I finally found a karaoke. It's 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 been you know, I've been living here for almost like ten years, and in Japan, and I go to karaoke a lot with my friends, but. I'm always when I look for Depeche Mode songs, it's like oh, people are people, mm. uh, enjoy the science. But I'm like, where's stuff from music from the masses? And then I find this past week, last Monday, I was at karaoke and I found 
Strange Love. And I, I cannot tell you how happy oh. I was to finally be able to find Strange Love at Japanese karaoke and to be able to sing it. Uh, terribly, I might add, but still, it was <laughs> incredibly enjoyable to do. I would have freaked out. Yeah, every year we we get drunk and we go do karaoke. You know, a bunch of you know stupid Americans and and stupid Australians, and we go and um, I mean they'll they'll you know I think I did what did I do? what would we always do we always do Duran Duran Rio we always do Oasis we always do some Oasis song um, and it's like they're feeding it to me because they know I'm going to be a maniac and and sing along, but uh, yeah I haven't done a, a mode. We did uh, oh, one of the – I'll be honest with you. Every time I think about it, I, I get weepy-eyed. Um, we did Robbie Williams' Angels. In, you know that song? I'm not too familiar with Robbie Williams, to be honest, because I'm more of an Oasis person, and you know they, they all hate each other. So, Right, right. But uh, we did Robbie Williams' Angels, and it's like you know this big belt you know, song. You're just you know singing along and hugging each other, and um, that probably is my biggest karaoke – memory in tokyo the first time we did it was singing that and we were just belting it out and just the drinks were flowing and the good times were had so yeah i mean listen next time we're there which will probably be you know come january um we got we got to make the karaoke night happen oh that'd be awesome yeah i mean the thing i think it sounds like everyone from like post wrestling is going to be there next year john way I think Braden and Dave are going to try to come. I know I know Martin Bushby of the British Wrestling Experience is going to try to come. Hopefully, we're going to try to get Benno to come with them. But yeah, that'd be awesome. I really enjoyed hanging out with like uh, you and your crew like during uh, during at TGIF and then but after the show outside and before we went into the Tokyo Dome. So it was a it was a fun time. I'm looking forward to next January. Uh, but let's let's shift the talk back to wrestling, which is what we're supposed to be talking about on this show. All right. But um, let me. I want to ask you like about your fandom for Japanese wrestling and New Japan in specific. Like, when did you start watching New Japan for wrestling, Damon? Great question. Um, for me, it was that I I had a friend who got the Observer, and this is probably 88 maybe, 88, 89 maybe, um, who got the Observer, let me read it, and I was like, what, what, what is happening here? Like, what, you know, what is this guy talking about? I, I know some of the wrestlers that they're talking about, but I don't know, you know, you know, the Japanese guys or the Mexican guys or, you know, just names that I haven't heard. And, you know, and, and, and in a, in a, in a language that I didn't understand either, you know, Dave kind of talking the way that he talked back in the time. And it was really hard to read too, because it was like he was literally typing it out on a typewriter, the newsletter. Um, and he, he had a uh, reader section where you would, um, you know, put your address and basically say what you were looking for and you were tape trading. And that's really the first stuff I got. I got like a, like a fifth generation, um, Multi-man tag, you know, those classic New Japan gauntlet matches or, or a multi-man tag. And I was like, wow, we. And I like, I, it, I had a list of what matches were on there and he had, they just, just had last names. But I would, re- you know, bring out the old Observer again and read, you know, about Ricky Choshu and read about Anoki. Uh, and, and I saw Anoki like on WWF house shows like they would broadcast madison square garden and then they would broadcast stuff from the spectrum of course here locally in philadelphia um and then actually you know so that was really kind of like where the the hardcore fandom kicked in for the japanese wrestling 
Um, but even before that, being a kid, the first Tiger Mask, Sayama, did a tour of the WWF. And he did the TV tapings in Allentown. And he did house shows around the circuit. And one of them was in Philadelphia. And he wrestled Eddie Gilbert in Philadelphia. And um, I remember watching that show. Uh, they used to televise them live on this cable network that was local called Prism. And he was on it. And I remember watching actually uh, one of the TV matches that he had. Um, and it was against Mr. Saito, as a matter of fact. And he did a dive over the top rope onto the floor. And trust me, in 1982, you ain't seeing nothing like that. Right? You're seeing Bob Backlund in, a, in an arm bar for 15 minutes. So – you know, you're seeing this guy in the mask and he's fast as hell and he's doing dives. And, I, you know, I'm a young kid and I'm just like, Boop, that's 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 amazing. And I never heard from him again until I picked up the Observer and he's talking about Tiger Mask and stuff like that. And obviously it wasn't Sayama, but um, he's talking Tiger Mask and, and I'm, now I'm in. Now I got to see, oh, my God, this guy's still alive and he's wrestling. Again, obviously not the same guy. Would it be and, Misawa's version of Tiger Mask yeah, at this point? Yeah, yeah, it'd be Misawa's. Um, it, but here, here's the thing. It wasn't even like 88 that I saw that. It was more of you know later down the road because I didn't subscribe right out of the gate. Um, I, you know, Truth be told, I kind of s- stole my friends, but then I wound up subscribing. Um, didn't have a lot of money growing up, WH. <laughs> no, I can tell you, that, that Observer subscription is, is not cheap, even when it's just like the newsletter form. So uh, yeah. I, I subscribed like probably around in 96. I was like borrowing copies from uh, – I think it was Dan the Mouth Lebransky, who was like my gateway into Japanese pro wrestling and tape trading. And and then I said, okay, I just got to buy my own copies of these. I'm really enjoying right. it. Um, but yeah, like I, I totally feel you. So which New Japan wrestler – was the one that you like latched onto the strongest when you first started diving deep into Perez. Right. So, you know, it started out Tiger Mask, uh, obviously. Um, and then as it got deeper, uh, it was uh, Nobuhiko Takata and it was Ricky Choshu and it was um, Maeda to a certain degree. But even, you know, even back before the mask and the gimmick, it, you know, it was Yamada. And he stuck out like a sore thumb to me. He was small and fast and and powerful and compact, and he didn't win a lot. There was always that underdog element. But, yeah, I mean, to me, he stuck out like a sore thumb. And, you know, the same reasons that I that I enjoyed watching the original Tiger Mask kind of can me connecting with him. Um, so, you know, you would get these tapes, and he he all, his matches almost always – Stuck out to me, and yeah, it, it kind of just grew from there. And you know, then the Liger um, gimmick, and you know, how can you not? You know, it's exactly what I wanted in pro wrestling when I was a kid. Now I'm a teenager, and and I'm getting it again. And it just continued on throughout my life. And just for clarification for people, we're talking about Keiichi Yamada, who is also more famously known as Jushin Thunder Liger. And uh, I, I'm going to echo your sentiment about Liger because. He was the guy, like, kind of my gateway into diving really, really deep into Japanese wrestling because I first saw him when he came over to WCW to do the program with uh, Brian Pillman for the mm-hmm. WCW, what I think was the light heavyweight title, I think it was called, yeah. the version of the junior heavyweight uh, belt. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Why? He's got a full bodysuit on. 
wait, he's got horns. I've never seen that in wrestling because like everything was like a variation of like Lucha style masks or American style masks like Mr. X or, you know, Aldo Montoya or shit like that. Right. So like Yusha Thunder Liger just blew me away just from from aesthetic point of view. He just looks so different from everyone else. And then I saw him wrestle. And oh my God, it, it was just blew my mind away. And he did the singles matches with Pillman. And then him and Pillman formed that tag team. Do you remember the, the I think it was the WCW or NWA World Tag Team t- Title Tournament that had those yeah. two? I think it was like Nikita Koloff and Ricky Steamboat, which is one of my favorite like mishmash tag teams of all time. Uh, Doc and Gordy were in there. Uh, yeah. And the Steiners were in there. It was just such a great tournament. And, and like, Pillman Liger went really far in this tournament. It was really amazing to see. And then when I got into tape trading, I would like I would scan like you know the the listings for like what tapes I wanted to buy because you know like you money was tight, so I had to be like maybe judicious about maybe one tape one or two tapes a month. And I was like, oh Liger, Liger, Benoit. Oh, he's fighting Benoit. Okay. Oh Liger, Malenko, D Malenko. What the fuck? Okay, I'm gonna get that. Right. You know, Black Tiger, Eddie Guerrero, and then and then from there I I got into the, the heavyweights had discovered like Shin Yashimoto and Masahiro Chono and, and uh, Keiji Muda, who I did not know was great Muda at that time. And then that's just a complete revelation to me. But that's awesome. I, it's again, like you and I are, have a very similar path in our fandoms, not only for music, but for Japanese professional wrestling as well. But uh, let, let's get into today's topic. Uh, this is episode three of Cruel Summer, and, and that means we're covering 1993 the G1 Climax tournament of that year. Um, And let me just give a bit of a background of this particular tournament. Uh, This is the second year that they ran a 16-man single elimination format. Uh, They did it in 92, which uh, was the, you know, saw the crowning of a new NWA world champion, uh, Masahiro Cheno, who beat uh, Ravishing Rick Rude in the finals. Uh, Like last year, I believe it ran the same dates from August 3rd to August 7th, uh, the finals being held at Ryogoku Kokugikan. Have you been to uh, Kokugikan Sumo Hall, Damon? Yes, I have. Uh, I went for G1 Climax 25, so I was there for two nights. Yep, two two, two, uh, semifinals and the finals, yeah. So another point I want to make about the the name of the show, Cruel Summer, is one of the other reasons I named it this way is because in August, it is ungodly hot in Japan. And Sumo Hall, I I did a two-night stand at Sumo Hall with Chris Charlton when we were doing the Japanese auto wrestling show. And I swear to God, I wanted to kill myself after the second night. I just wanted to never step foot in Sumo Hall. I wanted to just sit in a bath for like 17 hours just to wash the grime off of my body. Now, can I ask you, some people say to me, WH, you're insane. The air conditioning is fine in there. And I'm like, I I, I don't know what you're talking about because I have been there since. And I still feel the air conditioning in that building is the utter shits. What do you think? (laughs) Well, again, coming from the United States where air conditioning is on from April until November um, and cranked up as high as it can go. It's yeah, it was, it was, it's not, you know, full on air. It's like, you know, puffs of Luke cold air. Right. Um, Number one. And number two, there's not a comfortable seat in that building for a guy my size. Right? I'm a little bit of a bigger dude, so um, you know those those sumo boxes are are tough on the high knee. Oh, and dude, t- I hate those and, things. Oh, and tough on the back. And you know the first nights, you know, the semifinals nights, it was two to a box, so you could kind of stretch your legs a little bit and bring them back in. And you know you're not 
fully reclining, mind you, but you know, you could kind of get away with you know wiggling a little bit. Finals, it's four to a four to a box, and so you know, I'm you know to to, to, to kind of test yourself on this. I always say this to people: is go sit on your kitchen floor with the linoleum or the hardwood or whatever you got in there, and sit there cross-legged for eh, start with like an hour and a half, two hours. Why don't you start? So why don't you start there? That's what it is. That's what it feels like that finals night. And it's you you are it stinks because you're watching some of the greatest pro wrestling you ever see, yet in the back of your mind you're just like, please end this because I'm in such uncomfortableness. Uh I, I the sumo boxes do I've done four to a box for sumo and that's like a six hour event. I and I was in there with friends and I wanted and I hated each and every one of them after like hour <laughs> hour two and a half. You know what I mean? Like third hour I was just like I need to get out of here. Like I don't, and I'm not a huge sumo fan. I went more for the experience. It, it's a fun experience, but I'm never doing boxes for wrestling, pro wrestling, or sumo wrestling ever again. I'm gonna sit up in the rafters where it's much more comfortable and it, the seats are way better. So, anyways, uh, just wanted to talk about the 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 not so greatness of sumo hall as far as like the seating goes. But um, back to the tournament. Um, New Japan invited uh, several non-New Japan wrestlers to participate in 1993's tournament, including Hiromichi Fuyuki, Asuhara Hara, uh, Takashi Ishikawa, and the great Fubuki, who are all associated with uh, uh, Genichiro's Tenru's uh, WAR promotion, which stands for Wrestling and Romance. Uh, one of the greatest promotion names of all time. What do you think about that name, Damon? Right, that, and what was SWS? Was that well, I, well, Social uh, Wrestling something? Right. You're it's right. like it's it, like you know something that the Republicans would probably hate. You know, just based on the name alone. <laughs> right, it's like the, just the wackiest names back then. Yeah, wrestling romance. Uh, well, look, he, you know they tried. They tried to try something new, and, he, and then and, you know they they signed away you know top star to to try to make it happen. But um, yeah, we all we all saw kind of where that was going quickly, and then you know the the partnership or the marriage, if you will, with New Japan later on to kind of. Help save both, and, and it, that was a great program, though. I mean, let's be honest; I, I enjoyed it. But yeah, that that promotion was on its last legs at that point. Yeah, and then uh, finally, uh, Yoshiaki Fujiwara from Pro Wrestling Fujiwara Gumi was the last uh, outsider participant in that particular tournament. Um, let's talk about our participants in the finals, which we we're talking. We're going to talk about Hiroshi Hase and Tatsumi Fujinami, both New Japan legends. Um, uh, Hase's path to the finals consisted of him pinning Shinya Hashimoto and Kengo Kimura, who was uh, Tatsumi Fujinami's regular tag team partner. And they, they had a hell of a team, like uh, Fujinami and Kimura. And he submitted Masahiro Chono. So in, in that in that path to his uh, to the finals of this tournament, he beat two of the three musketeers, which was pretty significant for him at that point in his career, I think. Uh, Fujinami's path uh, saw him pinning Yoshiaki Fujiwara, uh, submitting Osamu Kido, and submitting uh, Keiji Muto, who at this point I think was teaming with Hase, right? Yeah. I think this is yeah. like when Hase was teaming with Muto and not Kensuke Sasaki at this point. Yeah, yeah. Sasaki was a little bit later, maybe um, closer to you know the nineties, if you know, in and around then. Um, the, the the thing that stood out to me and the, and the lead up to that were, were the submission wins. You know, Hase getting one, Fujinami kind of 
almost running the table with submission wins. Um, and that was a real big focus, right? Um, having people, what, you know, what, what theoretically we'll call tap out now, um, was, was pretty significant, you know, in, in, in the path that these, both these guys took to get here. It wasn't like, you know, suplex, you know, Northern Lake suplex was, was, was Hase. Um, and even like, you know, well, to a certain degree, you know, he was Fujinami got a lot of submission wins. But again, I, I just think that, and, and again, more thinking out loud, I just like the path that each of these guys took in getting more submission wins than anything else. Yeah, I thought that I think it was like a nice uh, call to detail that Hase, you know, pinned Kimura, Fujinami's regular partner, and mm. uh, and Fujinami pinned Muto, or submitted Muto, who was like Hase, Hase's partner. So they like beating each each other's respective partners to get to the finals. So I thought that was a nice little touch, uh, you know, in this tournament. So yeah, um, what what do you think about Hase? I love him. I really do. I think he's one of the most underrated guys in pro wrestling history. Um, I, I I just love his style. Um, obviously, he comes from that you know amateur Greco-Roman hardcore you know uh, Olympic style wrestling background. Um, I thought I I really do. I really think he's one of maybe one of the more underrated guys in all of wrestling history. Do you think he would have become a bigger star as like the Three Musketeers if he didn't leave New Japan or go into politics? Well, you know, toward the end, and and again, the end it wasn't like he you know retired when he was broken down and beaten and and he couldn't go anymore. I really just think he was just tired of the, the of the pro wrestling business nonsense, and that was more of anything that, that kind of took out his fire and took out his spark, and you know a lot of the backstage politicking and a lot of the the issues and scandals and, and troubles that New Japan had over the years were probably the biggest factor um, in him really just losing his passion for pro wrestling. Yeah, I mean, he did go part time into like all Japan and had like tons of dream matches. Uh, I remember. He had this particular match with Toshiaki Kawada that I just absolutely yeah. love, like that he did. Um, yeah, I, I I feel like he could have become like a fourth musketeer, so to speak, um, which is a spot that kind of went to I think Kensuke Sasaki. Uh, like, but I think Hase could have at one point held the IJGP uh, heavyweight title. That's just my feeling. Um, before we get into the match itself, I, I want to play the age game with you, Damon. Uh, oh. At this point in 1993, how old do you think Hiroshi Hase is? Uh, 93. He's probably in his 20s. I'll say late 20s. Okay, I'm probably so far off the mark right now. No, not, 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 not too much. Okay. He's 32 at this point. All right, so there you go. So I was going to say 29. So no, uh, this is very close. close. Yeah, yeah. And how about uh, the legend Tatsumi Fujinami? How old do you think he is in 1993? All right, so he. I mean, I remember seeing him in the 70s, right? So you figure he's in his early 20s in the 70s, 30s. He's probably 40. On I'll the say dot. 40. No, 40. 40 on the dot. There you hey, go. He All looks right. fucking amazing for a guy in his 40s in professional wrestling wrestling from like 1970s 1980s japanese wrestling style you know he he still looks in great shape you know especially if you compare him to choshi choshi kind of you know got softer and softer as the years went on but fujinami even to this day if you go see any of his like tradition shows or watch him on tv he he looks amazing for a man of his age yeah like he's but he, you know what it is with him and it seems like a lot of the guys from that era 
and and I'd be curious, you know, I might not be on this planet, um, uh, you know, while well, I'll be on the planet, but I'll be in the ground. Um, the like, I like to see the the physical health and the physical well being of a lot of people currently when they get to Fujinami's age. Fujinami to me is like one of those guys, and I think it was Stephen Regal that I heard him say this, where we hit people very hard in safe places. And that really kind of speaks volumes to the way I see Fujinami, where he received and delivered hard hits, hard blows, you know, just, just you know, stuff that, that, you know, would make you wince a little bit, but safe. Um, there really wasn't a lot of danger going on with Fujinami. And you could see physically how that kind of even, you know, listen, he, he was in amazing physical shape. Don't get me wrong. And it is amazing how his body held up just with regular old pro wrestling as it is. But yeah, like he, it just feels like he's one of those guys that, that, you know, the, the body just, just knew how to adapt to what he was trying to do. And he didn't do anything that was overly dangerous. I think there's something to be said for people who work in, you know, Perez, that if, if you're smart about where you, where you, where you get hit, where you hit people, that you can have a longevity that, you know, surpasses maybe a lot of people's expectations. I think that, you know, like you could probably compare him a lot to like Brett the Hitman Hart, who was, you know, famous for not hurting his opponents, but making everything look so snug. And he himself, like, you know, I, I think he took a lot of big bumps, but he tried to work as safe as possible for his own health as well. Um, you know, which is, you know, Ironic considering, you know, what, what what ended his career and everything. But, um, yeah, so, like, he just – I just wanted to make a point, like, at 40, like, you know, Fujinami looks amazing. And he's still, like, one of the top guys in the company along with Choshu at this point. The uh, Three Musketeers haven't kind of overtaken their spots uh, in 1993 at this point. So let, let's talk about the match itself. So it, it's emanating from a red-hot – uh, sumo hall i'm talking about the crowd not the actual air temperature of, of the building though i'm sure it's red hot in in that respect as well uh hase supporting a sweet looking mullet david did you ever have a mullet in the 1990s um in the 80s um i believe there might be some pictures out there um in a yearbook or two that, that might have me in a mullet yep i i, I will uh i will i will give a positive on that yes okay so like so mullets were a huge thing in 1990s Japanese pro wrestling, Hase, Sasaki, the, the list goes on. Uh, there's a big smile on his face. I think he's just happy that he's he's reached kind of like a, a pinnacle of his career to, to reach the, the, the end of this tournament, which has, you know, kind of at this point started really getting a reputation among, I think, the wrestlers and the fans for being a really prestigious event, like into its third year. Um and Fujinami though got a huge pot when they when they announced his name, uh, so he's still a super super favorite among the New Japan faithful. Uh, and the referee for this match is, in my estimation, the greatest New Japan ref of all time, Tiger Hattori. And I don't know if you know this about me, Damon, but I absolutely hate Red Shoes Uno. Really? Yes. Uh, I, see, Red Shoes reminds me of you know classic Tommy Young. Um, and, and in a lot of his mannerisms and facial expressions, and I like the Tommy Young, right? I, I growing up watching Crockett and NWA stuff, so I do enjoy the Red Shoes. Not, not, uh, but yeah, Tiger Tori. I mean, you figure 
how important he was in not only New Japan's history. And good to go back and watch the tapes. I mean, it seemed like every big match during that time he was involved in. And the talent and the fact that he helped bring over a lot of the Americans and foreign talent. Um, yeah, I can understand why he's top of your list. I mean, I'm not going to argue with you. Now, him and, like, Kyohei Wada are, like, my favorite Japanese refs of all time. Um, the thing about Red Shoes I don't like, it always seems like he's trying to do, like, some performance art instead of refereeing, you know, right. <laughs> with the finger waving, the hands on his hips. I, I feel like maybe as a youth, he was like a failed mime artist in the streets of Paris, and then he just gave up and decided to become a uh, pro wrestling ref and thought, I'm going to incorporate my performance art in my refereeing, and, and I absolutely hate him for it. But anyways, <laughs> let's not get too sidetracked here. Uh, one thing I noticed at the beginning of this match was like, Hase's left leg was heavily taped up, but, mm-hmm. but so was his boot. Like, yes. There's tape over his boot. Like, I do not know why his boot was taped up. Was it falling right. apart, David? I, I can't imagine. Like, so, uh, and and again, you know, I don't remember everything uh, in my life. So, again, um, when I knew that this was going to be one of the matches that, that um, I'm talking about, I, I had to go back and rewatch. And... And I'm watching and I'm like, what? It, it, and, it, and, it, and I instantly remembered. I was like, oh, my God. So you, you have to picture this. Again, if you're watching this match along with us talking about it, by all means, that's probably a really good idea. Um, you'll notice Hase, I think it was his left leg. It's almost to the top of his uh, thigh, all the way wrapped around white, white athletic tape down to his knee. And his knee is completely covered in tape except for a little spot on the kneecap where he could bend his knee. And then it goes down to about midway to his shin. Then you have skin, and then you have his boot. But if there was a problem with the ankle, I've right, you would tape the ankle itself, right, and then put on your boot or sock or whatever you, you're putting on. The tape is like you would tape an ankle for an injury, but it's around the wrestling boot. Uh, it, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, I thought, is it is the boot falling off? Did like he get hit with Mudo's corrosive acid mist or something? And like you know, he's got, oh, I can't buy new boots. My other boots are at home. You know, like my kids can't bring them to me right now. Oh, I have to tape up this boot. I have no idea, but it's a very interesting visual to say the least. Uh, uh, Fujinami is of course sporting black trunks, no knee pads, and his short black boots, his classic, you know, like strong style look that, you know, remnant of the 80s. It's an interesting thing to look at the aesthetics of the wrestlers. Like Choshu has his black trunks and his white boots, but very basic look. And Fujinami is, of course, you know, doing the the black and black on black. Um, But it's like the shift we get in like the the 90s, really, with like, you know, Muto and Hashimoto and and Chono, like kind of being more colorful with their gear. Hase, of course, as well. And and them hiring a lot of more colorful foreigners as well, like Big Ben Vader and Bam Bam Bigelow are, are, you know, staples of the the tours at this point. So it's kind of interesting to see the shift from like the 70s and 80s in terms of the gear to going towards like the more colorful gear you'll see in the nineties. And, and then you see kind of a shift back in the early two thousands. And then we have a, a shift back to more colorful, like in present day new Japan. Yeah. I mean, everything, I mean, they always say everything goes in, in, in circles and cycles. 
I'll, th- I'll tell you what, the one thing that really stuck out for me when, when it comes to Fujinami, and especially in the beginning of the match, again, they kind of zoom in on, on Hase, they zoom in on, on Tatsumi Fujinami. Um, and you had mentioned the smile on Hase's face where it was all, you know, he, it's almost a shit eating grin. Um, there had to be something that was funny that was amusing him. Uh, but then they zoomed in on, on, uh, Tatsumi Fujinami. And if you notice his chest, that you can see like the bruising and the, the, the wear and tear. Again, we talked about hitting hard in safe spots. Like you could just see where. A lot of he went through a lot of damage in this tournament, and it was a little bit discolored. It was it was uh, it was very noticeable to me. Yeah, it's surprising. I'm, I'm not maybe it was against Fujiwara because I don't I don't see Mudo necessarily hitting him that hard to discolor his skin. If he was in the same block as like or the same bracket as Hashimoto, I could totally understand it. But like I, I'd have to go back to watch the entire tournament to see where he uh, gets all this damage. Unless you know, Damon. No, you know what? I, I'm to be truthful. I don't think, and I'm trying to recollect. I know I have. Look, I have videos, and I have DVDs, and I have stuff on hard drives, and I have what you know. I know I have it, and I, I don't even know if ev- if every match was was broadcast. Well, I'm not 100 percent sure. Um, but I'd have to go back and look. I, I do not recollect off the top of my head. Oh, that's okay. We we people can go. You know, go on to New Japan World and, and shoot for themselves. We don't have to really answer that question. It's a mystery for our listeners to solve uh, yes. after they after this episode is done. Okay, so let's let's talk about the match at the beginning. Hase goes for a handshake, but the dastardly bastard that he is, it was to lure Fujinami into a trap, and then they you know they they start doing like moves against each other, and uh, you know Fujinami goes straight away for a Cobra twist and turns it into a German suplex. It's absolutely beautiful, Damon. That's the one thing, Hase with the suplex, the exploder suplexes, and the northern light suplexes, and like that was his thing. Like he was, he, you know, I guess for those more accustomed to Western pro wrestlers, you know, I, I hate when people start giving the, you know, this guy is the this guy of this promotion, but you could see why um, a match like. You know, um, you know, Hase and Sasaki against the Steiners was such a, you know, considered a classic at the time. And even to this day, just for that style, right? Just because that those teams mesh so well with that amateur collegiate style at first. But then they're just tossing bodies left and right, right? And Fujinami too. So, uh, yeah, I mean, right off the gate, we're starting a little bit hot, um, you know, with, with, the, with a handshake, that kind of little tug of war. And then they went right into it. And then at this point, uh, Fujinami has early control over Hase. Uh, at some point, he hits a dragon sleeper into a reverse DT of sorts. Uh, you know, and then Hase comes back, displaying his own like excellent wrestling background to ta- take down Fujinami and apply a leg lock on him. So I, I feel the story at this point is like Hase is trying to go for uh, working on the legs and the back to set up uh, his version of the Scorpion Deathlock. Um, at some point. After that, uh, he gets him. He uh, Hase gets Fujinami outside, and he hits an Uranage suplex on him to the mats on the outside of the uh, of the mat, of the ring. And I'm just like, oh my god, Fujinami is four years old. He's taking Uranage on the mats outside, which I, I I still feel is probably harder than the ring itself, Damon. Yeah, I'm not I'm not about to take a bump on the floor for anybody. No way. Um, yeah, Hase working over the back. Working, working again, 
setting up for suplexes and setting up to to kind of take away the back and the mobility of Fujinami, um, which I liked a lot. Um, the one thing that I was just kind of questioning on Fujinami is, again, you see the leg, and, and it does come into play later in the match, mind you. But it felt like there was an obvious and glaring place for Fujinami to focus and it took him a while to kind of find it, right? It took him a while to find the – and again, maybe, you know, you could kind of say, okay, well, that's Hase's defense and he's, you know, he's able to, to, to kind of keep Fujinami at bay. But, you know, your entire leg – I mean, well, I kid you not, people. His entire leg is taped up. His boot um, is taped up. <laughs> I mean, he's a mummy at this point. Uh, so, you know, it wasn't it wasn't too hard to spot. You know, a blind man could see it at that point. So uh, it took him a while to find the, the leg and, and work over Hase with that. Yeah, so as you're saying, Damon, like, he, Hase's really working the back. He rams Fujinami twice into the post outside. Um, he's working uh, him his back with strikes. He hits him with a gut-rich suplex. He tries a scorpion deathlock, doesn't get it on. Uh, then Fujinami gains, regains control, and he starts kicking Hase's leg. Uh, and this is the taped-up leg. And so, like you're saying, he's... He's like, uh, he's finally, oh, I, he's, I got a big target there. I got to start going after it. And then I feel he's trying to set up for uh, the figure four. Was that, that was one of his moves, as I recall, yes? He would use it. Yeah, he would use it. Absolutely. Yeah, and then so um, at some point, Hase regains control. This is a really back and forth match, if people can't tell. Uh, he slaps Fujinami repeatedly, to which Fujinami says, in my mind, he doesn't say this literally. He says it in my mind, fuck you, and slaps him back even harder, like, there's a series of slaps from Hase, and then Fujinami's just like, fuck you, and then just wallops him with like a yeah. you know, like something you would see from like Junakiyama to like a young boy these days. Wham! It was beautiful, Damon. I, I like to call them wake up spots, right? So again, you you you're watching a match and you, your mind might drift. He's like, okay, you're outside the ring, you're kind of doing your brawl, you're doing your uh, or you know you're you're exchanging holds on on the mat, or whatever the case may be. You're kind of building up and you you know you're telling your your story in the match. And and again, it might not be you don't have to be completely focused on your television screen. You can kind of come in and out, and but that's the time where it's like, oh, here we go, right? These this slap exchange and this. Uh, uh, strike exchange between Hase and Fujinami right around like the I would say right around maybe the ten minute mark. Uh, that that was that was what I like to call the wake up spot where you're like snapped into it and you're like okay here we go we're we're we're, we're going to town now yeah they're definitely going to town Hase comes back with his own slaps and kicks and drops Fujinami on his neck with another Ernagi suplex uh, uh, Fujinami powers out of a scorpion deathlock by reaching the ropes. And this is the point where I, what I call the crescendo of the match uh, happens. And, like, you know, like the, the crowd is totally into this. Uh, Fujinami blocks another Urnage temp with repeated elbows to the head of Hase. So Hase turns it into a dragon suplex with the bridge for a two count. And, and the, the, this two count just like got the seat, the crowd out of their seats. It was quite amazing to see. Uh, then like uh, Hase hits him with like you're saying his one of his signature moves a Northern Light suplex for another two count and then uh, that doesn't pin uh, Fujinami so he goes for a backdrop driver suplex it for two Fujinami's kicking out and like this this crowd is just absolutely totally into this match and and so am I Damon yeah yeah they they really did a great job and it, and the the one thing I want to stress is that 
I, I'm going to do my damnedest to not do this is to try and compare this match and matches of this time frame to maybe matches of, of current because I think it's really unfair. Um, that being said, what I try to think of is, OK, so what was going on in 93? Right. What was what was the wrestling landscape looking like? And, you know, you, of course, you had all Japan um, who was really starting to kick it into high gear. Um, but you know, let's be honest here. Aside from that, it really wasn't a lot of great, great wrestling that you were you, that you were sinking your teeth into. Right? You had WCW that was spinning its wheels. You had WWE that felt like you know they they were at least a, a you know a, a year or two before they started hitting their stride. Um, you know, and you had you know independence here and there, and then you you know you had. Uh, I mean, you had a lot of Japanese independence that you could – I wouldn't necessarily say that the entire card was great, but you probably had great main events. But yeah, I mean for the time, the way that they were able to build this match and you know, I hate to use the term tell the story, but they were telling the story um, of working over the back and, and, and again eventually Fujinami trying to work over those knees. Yeah, it's it. I, one thing I I think it's fair to be able to you know compare um, matches from this era to like current day wrestling in New Japan because I think that's one of the goals I want to have with this show is kind of contrast like how we feel about wrestling you know like twenty years ago to wrestling now. I I think you can draw a lot of parallels and like you can sh- show the pros and cons of like wrestling. Of, 19, of the 1990s to wrestling of the 2010s. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot to be said pro for the past and pro for the good, con for the, the past, con for the for the present, you know? So, hey, no, feel free to like, make those comparisons to contrast, David. No problem. Uh, getting back to the match, we're, we're hitting the, 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 the tail end of this match now. Fujinami blocks a second dragon suplex and hits Hase with his own Uranage. And then another one into his own version of the Scorpion Deathlock. A really big fuck you to Hase. I, I feel like you punk. You're not gonna beat me with like uh, in, in this tournament. So I'm gonna hit you with your own moves and put you in your own goddamn submission. And then he just yeah. He, and the, the great thing about this, this is one of the most beautiful Scorpion Deathlocks I've ever seen, uh, Damon. He just digs into Hase's back, and I'm just like, my god, that man is in for either like. Uh, a chiropractor session going to like the, the the hot spring to soak in there for like three hours and then may, maybe do the cupping thing that they do over in japan yeah yeah I, you know you, you really didn't see that back in the day as much as you do now um look it it, it it may seem weird and it may seem odd that in 1993 you know, whatever you want to call it, the sharpshooter, scorpion deathlop. Um, I mean, I know Choshu, the original name that I can't never pronounce, but you know, it's it might feel odd or strange or outdated or passe that this was a legitimate lethal pro wrestling finisher, right? You know, like you you would get put in this and you would struggle for your life, and then you know. Uh, I was going to say, you know, finishers were 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 emphatic exclamation points, and they are here still too to this day, right? We, we mean, we you can go back and and pick any any guy, and you know, I'll give I'll give Fale for an example. You know, you get uh, tossed up on the shoulders, and you're going for that ride. You, you're you're not kicking out, and I like that. 
Yeah, I, um, I think finishers can, and I'm not one of these people that, like, fit, no one should ever kick out of a, this move or should ever break this submission hold. I, I think it's fine if you protect it. Um, one thing, like, I feel that, like, you can bring back these moves and make them strong again. It's just conditioning of the audience, isn't it? You just have mm-hmm. to have people be beat. Like, you know, we, we just saw the passing of uh, Dick Bayer, the Destroyer, and I was watching some footage on YouTube, and my god, Batman's figure four is amazing. If someone wanted to, like, use his way of putting on the figure four, that could get over as a finisher, like, in 2019, definitely. It just depends how you apply it, and how, like, you know, like, people protect it, like your opponents and the bookers, and, and the support system you have in, in any wrestling company saying like we're gonna protect this move. It's it's right. not a finisher now, but it can be. Again, I think like things like the figure four, I think the Scorpion Deathlock, Sharpshooter, whatever you want to call it, can be done. I think even if you had the right person, you could get like the Cobra Twist as a finisher instead of as a transition move over. Yeah, and I mean anything. You're, you're exactly right. It's about conditioning the audience to, you know, oh this it, this could end the match and this will end the match. Um, and I do, and again, I like the fact that this is the G1 finals. So just because it's locked on doesn't necessarily mean that it's over. I like the fact that there's struggles and there's, you know, we're getting to the ropes and I'm fighting for my life. And I, you know, um, you know, I, I can't quit right now. Right. Um, you're going to have to, you're going to really have to work for me to give up because everything's on the line. So I do like that element of it's not over until the bell rings. Well, Fujinami definitely. Uh, had his work cut out for him because like uh, Hase was able to reach the ropes to break the Scorpion Deathlock. Fujinami puts another Scorpion Deathlock on him. Fujinami escapes again by reaching the ropes. But you know, third time is a charm for Fujinami, and he wins G1 and with uh, the Scorpion Deathlock at 21:49. And yeah, Jamin, overall thoughts on this match? I I quite enjoyed it a lot. I I don't I I placed it a little bit under. 1991, Muto and Chono. I, but I do place it above like uh, Chono and Recruit. Yeah, I like Chono and Recruit a lot. Um, so I probably would put that a, a smidge over this. Um, I mean, do we do do we throw around snowflakes here? Dude, do we, do it. Uh, you're, you're the guest. Please do whatever you want. Right. I'm a snowflake flo- uh, thrower, guys. So uh, sorry if, if you if you are offended by snowflakes. You might want to uh, you might want to bail out, but um, I was at the four. I I, I kind of went four with this. Um, I didn't I didn't go over. Um, and it, and again, it might be you know if you talked in 1993, Damon, I probably would guarantee you that it might have been even a little bit higher than that. Yeah. But I, on on a on a on a 2019 rewatch, I was I was I was hitting four. I gave it four, and it might have been a gentleman's four. Is that a thing? I thought it was a gentleman's three. I made up gentleman's four. Okay. <laughs> we have a new rating out there. And Joel, if, if when you ever listen to this, you have to now incorporate the gentleman's four onto the Super J cast, okay? Uh, yeah. I, I, I'll go with a, a straight flat four on this. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I just thought both participants just did an excellent job of telling a story, like you're saying, Damon. Like, you know, they get working over the back working over the leg. It, it just was a beautiful... And I, I like the idea that they're like using each other's moves 
on each other as well. So yeah, yeah, definitely like a really great match to go out out of your way to see. And just to like if you're if you're not if you're a recent fan of New Japan, you have access to New Japan World. Go back and watch some of these matches from the 80s and the 90s. Uh, you will see a lot of this stuff really holds up to this day. Yeah, I think this is a match that holds up. You know, my only small critique would be I wish it were longer. Right? What, what did you say? Twenty minutes? Maybe it's just a hair over twenty minutes. Uh, just just under twenty-two. Um, okay. All right. I mean, you know, when you talk about G1s and the expectations, I guess, of of today's New Japan, that you know, you might want to see that kind of bridge over over twenty-five, thirty minutes, right? Um, at the time, you know. I, I could see where 1993 Damon might have been like, oh, give me a look, give me, give me a little bit more of this, give me a little, you know, five more, ten more minutes, um, and that might have put it over the top. But um, yeah, that would be my only gripe. Would be it felt short, and it felt, um, it, and that might be a compliment actually if you think about it, because I wanted more, and I, you know, they kind of did the Costanza. If you're a Steinfeld fan. Um, did I say Steinfeld? Steinfeld. <laughs> you know what I mean. Steinfeld's the uh, Russian you know, version of that show. I believe so. I believe the, the – um, you know, he, the Costanza, he gets out when, when the going's good. Maybe that's exactly what they did. They left them on a high note. They left the crowd at a fever pitch, and, you know, they got out of Dodge. I mean, I agree with you. I think it could have gone another five minutes. I, I'm not, I'm not uh, unhappy with, like, the length of this match, but, like, I, I can totally see – where you're coming from, like I, it could have gone, like could have done more escapes and maybe get Hase, have him have a like a get, you know, have him have the advantage and go for like more kind of to, trying to get his decisive win over Fujinami. But uh, you know, ultimately the the story is like Fujinami getting the win and, and going to ch- challenge for the, the the title later on. And I, I mentioned this in previous shows, like like obviously one of the goals or prizes of, of the G1 Climax is to get a shot at the IWGP heavyweight title. At this point in time, getting that shot at Tokyo is not necessarily uh, a stipulation or a thing. Um, Choshi, Fujinami wouldn't cash in his uh, title opportunity until uh, April 4th of the next year in 1994, and where he would challenge and defeat Shinya Hashimoto at Battle Line Kyushu 1994, Grand Cross in Hiroshima, these are awesome show names, by the way. If you go back, if you look at Cage Match, like I kind of miss these really elaborate and long names for show names. Now we just get Dominion, Dontaku, right. you know, all these things. But I, you know, you can't. Battle be... Star Summer Series Excite. Exactly. <laughs> Some nonsense like that, right? Fucking yeah. amazing stuff. And uh, this was held at the uh, Hiroshima Green Arena. And uh, I haven't watched that particular title match. I'm probably going to watch it sometime this weekend just to do a follow up on that. But uh, Damon, before we we uh, you know, end the show. And before I want to, I want you to plug stuff at the end of the show, but I want to do a little trivia game with you. Um, oh no. Okay. So, and these are all like American pop and pop culture things. So don't worry. I'm not going to oh, ask okay, you good. what <laughs> the number one. So-and-so in Japan was at the time. We're, we're going to keep it right. to like Western, Western entertainment. Uh, so right. in, in August uh, of 1993, what was the number one song on the billboard? What uh, top 100 charts? Okay, so '93, we're even. We're kind of even going post grunge at this point, right? '93, August, you said. Of, so summertime. Yeah, so like about August seventh, uh, ninth on the on the charts. Okay, I'm gonna. I mean, listen, you 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 have me on the show. It's there's. You know what? For some reason, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna say, uh, "Lightning Crashes" by Live. 
That's a good guess. It's not. It's it's by a group from the UK. If that helps you. Oh, it's okay. A, I, right. I believe it's so, a cover song. I believe it's a cover song. Right. Uh, is it a band or a singular it uh, is a band. artist? It is a band. And they have 92. a number in their name, uh, Damon. They have a number in their name. Um, and it was the United States? <laughs> it was the number one? It's the top 100, like the, the billboard. The billboard <laughs> okay. Um, I, I mean, I, I should know this, right? I mean, this is, I mean, what band had a number in it in 93? Like, I'm, I'm lost between EMF and Jesus Jones going to uh, Blur and Oasis. Um, okay, so I'll give you another hint. This, this right. group, like, got their start in the 80s and then kind of, like, you know, kind of was still relevant to a degree in the early 90s but i think pretty much this was like, was it was it ordinary world no it, it wasn't duran duran they, uh, they don't have a number you did say number yeah uh i i have no idea okay it's can't help falling in love by ub40 oh yeah i probably heard like three notes when that would come on you would hear that no i'm thinking of the wrong one but it would literally be change the channel not a ub40 fan no i i kind of dig no. some of their 80s stuff more but uh, like Red Red Wine, I think it's a great song. Uh, okay, what's the number one album? And I'll give you a clue. It's it's a hip hop album. I don't know if you're a big hip hop head. I'm uh, really isn't my thing. But '93, who was big? It was either. Um, well, these guys smoked a nature? lot of weed. Was, they're, they're, they're famous for smoking a lot of weed. It was it the Insane in the Membrane guys? Yes, yeah, Cypress Hill. Do you know the Cypress name of the Hill? album? Um, fucking. No. <laughs> okay, it's, it's it's Black Sunday by uh, Cypress Hill. Okay, let's okay, continue. Maybe this might be easier for you. Uh, what was the number one movie in North America or in America at this time, Damon, in, in August okay. of 1993? So I used to work in a movie theater. It's like one of my first jobs, right? Um, but that was in the 80s. Um, was it a Batman? It was not a Batman. It was an action thriller. Starring okay. someone from Star Wars. Harrison Ford. So I'll go. Is, is this the, the fucking get off my plane movie? <laughs> it's not Air Force One, no. <laughs> no. I think it's I don't before. Know I think it's before. I, I'm the worst of movies. Go ahead. Uh, it's The Fugitive. Uh, starring I never Ford. saw it. Oh, really? It's, I, it's, I, it's I, a remake I, of the TV show from the 60s. I swear to you, if if you listen to the Super J cast, you will know that I... I've the last like I have five movies that I watch, and anytime they're on, I will watch them. But it's I, five movies: it's Meatballs, Caddyshack, Fast Times, Ridgemont High, Goodfellas, and um, there's one more, but I can't remember. Maybe The Matrix. Um, that's it. That's, that's that. That's really it. I don't. I don't watch a lot of movies. I stink. Really, I think I figured you'd be like a big John Hughes fan because of how he. Oh yeah, music. you he know what? You're movies. right. I take that back. You're right. I do. I do like a little Ferris Bueller. Actually, I watched Ferris Bueller on the flight uh, to Tokyo last time. I, yeah, you I know, the entire movie. I think the best, like from the the John Hughes kind of, like he didn't direct all of these, but like like some kind of wonderful is a great use oh, of music, yeah. and Pretty in Pink obviously is a great use of music. Like just he just had some amazing like taste soundtracks, yeah. yeah and he would he would he was good at breaking those audiences. Like I read somewhere. That it was like Molly Ringwald who would go to him, and or, or like he would go to her and be like, "All right, what's the, what's cool now? What's hot band?" And you know, she was definitely into a lot of the stuff that we liked, the New Order and and um, Psychedelic I just remember like Psychedelic Furs and and um, you know that album that had the did had the Smiths on it, right? Uh, please, please let me get what I want. That had 
uh, obviously Pretty in Pink, Pretty in Pink, but some kind of wonderful had Jesus Mary chain on it, and yeah, yeah, those John Hughes movies were really fucking great too. So I lie, maybe I have more than that. Okay, uh, and now we're getting into the the wrestling portion of the trivia. Uh, Damon, who was the IWGP Heavyweight Champion uh, in August of 1993? Uh, was it Ricky? It was not Ricky. It was one of the Three Musketeers, kind of. Was it? Okay. Was it uh, Chono? It was not Chono. I I fucking stink then. Um, was it Muda? It was Muta. So it was the Great Muta version of Keiji Muda. Yeah. I here's the thing. I feel like I'm at the point in my life where I don't remember shit. Number one, and then number two. I probably did a lot of drugs in the 90s. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, and, sure, okay. and three, um, I just get shit mixed up. My, like, my timeline is all over the place. Like I, like I just realized I've been in, in, in my home that I own for 20 years, over 20 years, right? Uh, that's, that's crazy to me. You know what I mean? Like, like I just – I don't – where did that time go? Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of terrible. And trivia, I'm not the best at it. Give me – you have one more trivia. Let me try and redeem myself here. No, I got, uh, I got uh, three more questions All right. for you. All right. Okay. All right. So uh, – and I, don't don't feel bad. I'm like you. I, my memory is complete shit. I couldn't tell you what was like you know, off the top of my head, like the last three years of like you know, like from 2011 to 2015 of the G1 Climax. <laughs> I, I had to look this shit up. So don't feel right. bad. Please, please don't worry okay. about it. Uh, who was the Triple Crown champion in All Japan for Wrestling at this point? Okay, so it's uh, 93. Was it Jumbo? It's not Jumbo. It was the okay. person who would succeed Jumbo. Was it Masao? It was Masao, yes, for sure. Okay. And let's go to – let's cross the pond over to uh, North America. And who was the WWF heavyweight champion at this point? Okay. Um, is this like the time where we're talking – Backlund, Michaels, Bret Hart in '90s. I'll, I'll go. Bre- I'll go. Bret. It's the guy who would beat Bret for the belt. Uh, the guy who beat Bret for it was Sean. Sean Michaels, right? The other one. <laughs> <laughs> in '93. Uh, in '93, who beat? Um, who beat Bret for the belt? Was, was it? Diesel beat Backlund. Uh, was it Backlund? It was not back. It was. I'm sorry. It's Yokozuna. Oh, that's right. That's right. They did the whole fucking WrestleMania thing. Uh, yeah, okay. Right, right. That's one of my favorite storylines. Like when I was a, when I was like that age, like I really liked this idea that you know Yokozuna was this monster heel, and like the two guys he was most afraid of, like that he would like send like Crush and all the like his henchmen after would be like Bret Hart and Lex Luger. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I like yeah. that whole idea of like like tearing like wrestlers into like certain slots, like. Bret Hart and Lex Luger are the big threats to the monster heel champion. And then you have like your, your undercard guys who are trying to reach that level. But like, I, I always love the fact that Bret Hart was like, Yokozuna was definitely afraid of fighting Bret Hart again because he knew like Bret Hart could beat him. It's just a great little aspect to that story that, that paid off later when Bret Hart would actually beat Yokozuna for the title later on. Uh, but finally, who was? I'm not doing well. I'm not, I'm not doing, you know, I don't think I've gotten one right. I'm just, I'm just FYI. Well, don't, David. I don't know if you've been following the New Japan Cup and my 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 predictions. I'm doing actually dog shit, like I do every year. You know, I <laughs> I'm the worst person to predict a tournament. And if I didn't write all this stuff down, I probably wouldn't know the answers as well. So please don't feel right. bad. Uh, finally, right. last question: Who was the WCW World Champion in August of 1993? 
Okay. Was it Flair? It was not Flair. Okay. August of 93. Was it Ron? Now it was 91. That was like Simmons and Vader and all that, right? Uh, I was like, uh. You're, you're in the ballpark. Really? Vader? It was Vader, yes. His big bang. Okay, there you go. Jim Jim. All right. Uh, at, uh, in August of 1993. So Here's yes, the I, thing. In, in the States, it, that, to me, that was like a really – I'm making excuses. I, I listen, I, I'm, I'm, I, half my brain works at this point. Uh, but what, what am I going to say? I, I don't have no memory. I do have like a great like fondness for <laughs> like 1990s. Like from 90 to mm, 95 – just before Nitro, I, I'm not a huge fan of early Nitro period WCW, but I really like that. Like as as shit as it was, there was some like really good stuff. Like you had the Steiners taking on the Nasty Boys and the Freebirds and the Midnight Express and Doc and Gordy. That's like one of my favorite tag team feuds of all time. You had Sting. I thought Sting was involved in some amazing stuff, especially with Vader. Yeah, you, you, you had Damon. How can you not love the WCW Patriots? Todd Champion and Firebreaker <laughs> Chip. That, that's one of the Fire. greatest tag teams of all time. And, I'm not, and I shit you not, I'm not being ironic here. I'm not pulling like a hipster ironic, like, you know, comment there. I, I, I genuinely thought the WCW Patriots were a very fun tag team at that time. He had Marcus Alexander Bagwell teaming up with Two Cold Scorpio. That was, I think, Bagwell's best tag team of all time. Um, and just tons of really good stuff. You had like Barbarian killing jobbers how can you not love stuff like that but yeah i mean there's some really really bad shit in wcw at this time and the wwf at this time but i try to like find the gems like the dangerous alliance and and things yeah. like that dangerous alliance was pretty cool uh, you know it was, it was i i kind of feel like the post heard stuff and then things were in flux and was just like they came that, like that was really when they came off of when we're talking wcw like they were coming off of a really one of my favorite eras of pro wrestling funk and muda and flair and steamboat and funk and uh midnight you know midnight's anderson but all they were coming off of all that right yeah it was and a good it stuff like, and then it just, and then bill watts was brought in and you know, obviously heard was brought in and jim uh, bill watts was brought in and you thought okay you know we're, we're you know it's you know we we went dipped a little bit post all 89 but then now we got Big Bill coming in, and then, nope, we're bringing in Jushin Liger. Yay! He's not coming off the top rope. What? <laughs> can't, can't go over the top rope. Can't go off the top rope. You can't throw people over the top rope either, which is kind of funny. Right. You're yeah. just like, what? And then it just got – it just went downhill from there. But, uh, you know, spin the wheel, make the deal came from that, right, if yes, I'm not mistaken? exactly. Jake exactly. and uh, – I, I was in Philadelphia. I was there for that. I brought a girl there, and – um she didn't had no idea wrestling, but I was like, "Ah, oh, we're gonna go to wrestling." She's like, "Okay, great." Uh, we left before we were doing that match. She was like, "I'm, I'm really not having this." I was like, "All right, listen, we'll, we'll leave." So we, I left. It's a good thing you didn't take event. her to like an ECW show. Maybe she wouldn't have lasted past the the second match. Oh, I can't take. I have listened. I'll tell you the stories, but I can't. I I don't have good luck bringing ladies. Uh, in my life to pro wrestling shows. It's never, it never works out. Let me, guys, let me give you some advice. If you have a, uh, a young lady in your life that uh, is not a fan of pro wrestling, don't bring her. <laughs> Leave her home. If she's a fan, great. Let her go. You can enjoy something. But my Lord, I've just had 
what a just nightmare experience. So no, I I don't recommend that. All right, dating advice and re- dating wrestling advice from from Dan McDonald. Uh, you got something extra, a bonus aspect to uh, this particular podcast. Um, but before we wrap things up, Damon, please, do you have any plugs you want to uh, tell people about? Well, again, it is um, the Super J Cast, and we're we're happy and proud. Um, every it seems like every month I get numbers from Joel, and I look in and I see um, just. You know, people enjoying the show and the feedback and and all that. So again, you can check us out. It, it is the Super J Cast. It's every week, and we talk about New Japan um, and a lot of other things too. Sometimes, so uh, uh, we sometimes we get veer off, kind of like we did here today. Um, yeah, and that's with uh, uh, good pal Joel Abraham, who uh, drives the ship. And uh, again, you can follow on the Twitter machine at the, the Super J Cast. Um, I'm not on there. Uh, I'm not really, it's not really my thing. Um, Joel usually takes care of that. Uh, and hey, listen, if you like the show and maybe all that, maybe you want to buy a t-shirt, right? Mm-hmm. You could do that. Uh, we got one of those, uh, pro wrestling tees, uh, stores, uh, pro wrestling tees.com slash super That'll help us out. And, and you, and I know you like to, you know, like if you, people want to chat with like you and Joel, like you can like through, I believe the discord, right? Yeah, so uh, they, yeah, they set up a nice little Discord um, thing. I'm, I pop in every once in a while. I'm not really good at the texting and chatting. I, I, I just – I don't know. I'm really kind of a maniac when it comes to that. Um, but Joel, he's very active. And again, we have a community and um, and, we have, and we have members there that um, really have a have a – a really cool, chill. Everybody's, you know, nobody's gatekeeping. Nobody's being jerks. Um, they really kind of, you know, they they don't they don't go for that. So, um, yeah, by all means, you can check that out. Um, if you go to our our, our Twitter account, we have a link there and, and show notes as well. So, um, yeah, definitely check us out. We would certainly appreciate it. Yeah, definitely check out the Super J Cast over at VoicesWrestling.com. It's one of my favorite podcasts. I, I listen to it uh, faithfully every week. Uh, when it comes up on when it you know Joel t- tweets about it, I'm like okay gotta go to my you know podcast app go download it and it's a great listen for me on my like commute from home to work um, so that's it for uh, this particular episode of uh, Cruel Summer Damon thank you so much for joining us today and to all the listeners thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode goodbye. Mm-hmm.